Your body is good. And as much as we live in a culture which has pulled us from our bodies and made us think that our bodies are the problems, maybe those stories about bodies are the problems, not bodies themselves. And that when we know that about ourselves, then we start to want to pull apart some of these hierarchies that really do keep certain bodies in positions of disempowerment and marginalization. And I think the, the subtext through all of that is there is no such thing as healing ourselves without healing our culture. And there's no such thing as healing the people and the relationships and the communities around us without also being transformed and reconciled to ourselves. And in that way, everything is deeply interconnected. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. And I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. What if our negative relationship with our bodies wasn't an individual problem, but rather a collective, deeply rooted problem with the ways we were taught to view our bodies and their value? What if there was a path to not only accepting our bodies, but embracing them? Today's guest, Dr. Hillary McBride, joined us for an incredible, complex, and beautiful conversation about the ways that the internalized messages we believe about ourselves impact not only our own well-being, but the interconnected healing of our communities and our culture. Hillary is best known for her work in the podcasting world, taking mental health and psychology into daily life, and as she shares in this interview, creating avenues for knowledge and insight to be distributed to people who need it most. Hillary is brilliant, caring, bold, and so generous with the breadth of knowledge and insight she carries. This conversation is a gift. We hope it leaves you with a little bit of permission to explore the messages that have held you back in embracing your body as good. Here we are, Hillary McBride on the Living Center podcast. Welcome. It's really good to see you here and good to finally get a chance to connect with you. I've been a fan of and, and following your work for a while now. We've got so many mutual connections and I just know you're just uh, an amazing voice out in the world and we're thankful you allocated a little time uh, to talk to our community today. So welcome. Oh, my pleasure to be with you both. Thank you for having me. Yeah, welcome. I am a longtime listener of The Liturgist mm. and always appreciate it when your voice popped up on there and how you advocate for people and their emotional health. So, mm, so fun you. to have you on the Living Center podcast. I, I would love to hear some more about your work around sort of helping women love themselves and their bodies in particular. Mm-hmm. I personally struggled with an eating disorder in high school and I think that it's been a lifelong journey of just of trying to accept myself as I am. And so I just am so curious to hear about what you've learned in your work around that. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, isn't that lovely of you to ask? You stumbled right into one of my favorite things to talk about. <laughs> Thank you. What a gift to me. Um, oh, my, my research, not unlike you, Lindsay, is like connected deeply to my, my story of eating disorder recovery and the journey from, from exploring how I thought this pain that I was carrying and working through in my body was about me to really seeing there's a systemic thing that's going on here. So 
gosh, some really important moments in my treatment. So in, in treatment for me, getting access to a therapist who kind of at the end of my road, when she was, we often talk about her as being kind of my last ditch effort, really allowed me to get angry mm. about some of the the social and cultural pieces that were contributing to the way that pain was showing up in my body. And coming to realize that my eating disorder was me being everything that culture asked me to be, that I was being a good woman, mm. that I was being compliant, that I was actually performing the role that had been scripted for me. And that really removed the shame for me, but elicited the anger in response to starting to notice and identify the fabric that holds these experiences of body shame and disempowerment in place. So in my master's research, really started looking at how do women love their bodies, as I mentioned, in a culture that asks us to hate our bodies? But it didn't start that way. I actually was really interested in looking at eating disorder treatment and recovery, looking at body image pathology. And it started to click really that like there's actually an abundance of research about that. There's we don't we don't actually need any more research about like how why do we hate our bodies as women and now increasingly more boys and men. Th those things have actually been very well studied. What is still relatively unknown is how do we repair that? Yeah. How do we do that in a way that orients us back to wholeness or stops those fissures in the self and in the psyche and in the culture from happening in the first place? So I wanted to take it from a different slant, which is how do we, how do we be integrated within ourselves? How do we not see the body as an enemy and what goes into that process? This seems like an individual problem. This seems like a thing that is embedded within the individual. And that's part of the problem of psychology as a discipline. We have seen suffering as, as within the individual and neglected at times to see how suffering and then consequently healing is a byproduct of our interpersonal experiences. And when we see body body hatred, body shame, eating disorder behavior in a social context, what we understand is it's a way to negotiate power or mm. safety or control in a context which has said primarily to women, primarily to women of color, your body is the problem. Your body is the place where all of this started to break down. Your body is a liability, but also somehow, and here's the paradox, also somehow your ticket to be desirable. So there's a double message going on often in the patriarchal, um, misogynistic social framework of white supremacist North America, which is bodies are bad, but you might be able to be valued and loved if your body looks like this and not like that. And when we can start to deconstruct the complexity of those paradoxical messages, we can start to see that we have internalized, many of us have internalized a kind of disembodied way of thinking, a way of assuming that we are the mind to get away from the body, but also then the finessing and the shame and the tweaking and the corseting and the managing of the body to also somehow establish social worth and social value. 
But we don't know that that is the legacy, the political, social, historical legacy we are swimming in when we get up in the morning and look at the mirror and go, oh, somehow that hasn't been explained to us well. And so here we are carrying around shame and disembodiment and trying to adjust and adapt our bodies to appear ideal without ever realizing if we can begin to consider that our body is more than appearance and that our body is wise and that our body has always been here, wherever here is, and is the invitation essentially into an integrated self in a society that has been more cognitively oriented, more disembodied, then we we don't really even need to try to wrestle with some of those body image thoughts like, oh, I don't like my body. I don't like my appearance today. Because we're recognizing that the focus on appearance and the focus on judgment about our appearance is a byproduct of a bigger thing that's going on, but the way to heal is from the bottom up. So asking ourselves to be bodies and remember that there is wisdom and goodness in being a body in so many other ways than just an appearance. So good. That was kind of a long-winded <laughs> foray into my story research. And I, I've got a couple of thoughts, but Lindsay, I wanted to make sure I pause because that was such a great question and make sure you didn't have any follow-up. I mean, there. so much, I'm with you. I have so much follow-up and thoughts. I think one of the things that really, like I was sort of wrestling through as I listened to you talk is sort of, I think even the idea of what is healthy has gotten so hijacked. Oh, Yeah. I think that exists in so much of us that sort of what is rewarded in society a lot of times is sort of us leaning into our brokenness mm-hmm. and sort of living it out and sort of submitting to it, like you said. And so it just, it's all really powerful and helpful to hear, like we're not crazy and right. the, we've been conditioned this way, but there is right. a different way. And when you were talking about the part about embodiment, I was like, yeah, I think I don't give my body credit everything it does it I think of it more as I'm like looking through pictures and be like was that outfit flattering (laughs) you know instead of thinking I get up in the morning and I have you know like sturdy feet to stand on and can take a deep breath and yawn and just all the magnificent things it does to get me through the day Uh and its resiliency and so just the idea of thinking of it more holistically is really helpful Hmm. You mentioned something that reminds me of the research by Mimi Nixter, I think is how you say her last name. And she coined a term in the sociological research called fat talk, which is the actual, like the, the social script that we don't even know is handed down to us that says, you know, when someone, when one of your peers says, oh, you know, I hate my thighs, you know, immediately what to say next. But what showed up in my research, particularly in my master's research was when, wo- when a woman says, can I just tell you how much I love my body? Can I just tell you, oh my goodness, this, there's something really amazing happening as I'm learning to pay attention to my hunger cues or, oh, look at, look at my body after I've had a baby. Wow. You know, whatever the thing is, <laughs> like, what do we say next? Like, we don't have it embedded in our social scripts to know like, you know, let's go here. All here are all the places that we could take that conversation because we don't have the scripting down to support a narrative of women loving their bodies or people loving their bodies and talking about their bodies in a loving, nurturing, non-self-objectifying, self-sexualizing way. 
I, I think I'm just emphasizing your point that we don't really know how to do that culturally, and that's a problem. Yeah. Hey there. In honor of Mental Health Awareness Month, we've created a special offer just for our podcast listeners to save 20% off our collection of curated emotional wellness resources, gifts, books, and apparel from the Onsite Mercantile. Head to onsiteworkshops.com slash mercantile and use the code MENTALHEALTH at the checkout for 20% off your entire order. Hearing a little bit of what, about how you were you started with your research around eating disorder treatment, but quickly realized and pivoted into a more holistic view. Um, I had an opportunity pre onsite and what I, what I do now to run a residential young adult uh, program uh, that had, we specialized in addiction, trauma and eating disorders. And mm. I say we specialized in eating disorders. I would now look back and I say we treated eating disorders. I don't mm -hmm. really think we knew what we were doing that well, but we just saw a, a need and we're trying to learn as we go. And I think we did, you know, subpar treatment based on what I know now. But mm -hmm. you, you, you know, at that time, I thought we were doing pretty good. Mm -hmm. And I think we were giving people half the picture. And I love the way you broke it out with social, historical and political legacies. I, I wanted to just hear you speak into that a little bit more on why you feel weaving social, historical, political together as it relates to explaining the legacies in which we all robotically live out today in some ways mm -hmm. or unconsciously. Why do you feel that's important? How did you arrive there? And how could it benefit us from understanding that more? Mm -hmm. In the same way that educating about the psychobiology or no, neurophysiology of trauma can lift shame, recognizing that the things that we are carrying around inside of us are never from the core of who we are. They're things we've learned to, to take on, stories mm -hmm. we've learned to tell about ourselves helps to create just a little bit of space. I'm thinking about parts work in internal family systems here mm -hmm. too. The, the space between the self, who the self has always been, and then these parts of us that have learned to be good in society, to be valuable, or have taken on a story that disconnects us from other people, that is holding judgment inside of us for others or for ourselves, that fragments the way that we can do empathy or connection or justice work. So I think the psychoeducation there or the, the way that we give away information that demystifies why it hurts to be human can restore us when it's done well. And I don't want to overemphasize cognition or information as the medicine itself, but it can it can humanize us to our own suffering and to the bigger problem that's going on. And so I think, I think that allows us in a disembodied culture to use the thing that we are most familiar with, our mind, to give us permission to go back into our bodies. It is important to remember that, that the fragmented way that we see the world is not the only way of seeing the world. And we can't do healing within ourselves without also doing healing between us and other people. It's this, the holistic journey to go, oh, how did we get here? Oh, and I can connect. And there's a good reason for that. And this is not actually the only way of being. I think, I think that's why it's important. This is sort of probably a basic question. But as you were talking about the connection between the body and the mind, where does the heart or the soul fit in that? 
I just, is it part? How is or, that basic, Lindsay? Well, I just was like, where's the heart? Where's the soul? The well, question. I just know we talk so much, or Miles talks so much about bridging the gap between your head and your heart. And then you were talking about bridging the gap between your head and your body. And I'm like, so what? where's the soul or the heart? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think of the heart um, probably as being, in a way, this instinct that lives in our body, that lives as a body. And I'm not sure, like, I think this language that we use of like the head versus the heart is a colloquial divide we've constructed. That you're not actually like, (laughs) I think it's a little bit more complicated and, and nuanced and messy than that. And most of us, when we boil it down, what we think is the head is actually kind of this this part of us that we've learned to play that does the does the right thing or thinks things through in a hypercritical way or is very attuned to what we should be doing and when we're talking about the heart usually what we're referencing is like gut instinct uh-huh. or a sense of um, knowing that's deep inside of us but that feels in conflict with this role we've learned that we've had to play and I'm not so sure if the, if the soul exists in either one of those places, but is rather the process of being human and what happens all along that drives us forward into, into growth and vitality and life, even in spite of all of these things that we've picked up that have made us small and disconnected from each other. So I, I think less about location and more about process and Merleau-Ponty, his, his scholarly and philosophical work has really influenced me and really the, his work, even though as a French philosopher in the 50s, as a white man in Europe, was one of the first people to introduce back into philosophical discourse the idea of embodiment, that the psyche cannot be extracted, that the mind cannot be extracted from the body in a philosophical way, that the self is embodied. He gives us four existentials to look at what it means to be human. And one of them is temporality. So our sense of being across time. So whenever we're looking at a particular moment, I don't know if we'll like, oh, the soul is, you know, in this spot, but perhaps rather makes itself known in this arc of time. And that's less of an easy answer, (laughs) but I, I, I love the question, Lindsay, I think, gosh, I, let's talk about this in a year from now and I'll have a different answer. And then another five years from now. And I'm, I'm more interested in the question than the answer, I should say. Tell me about your decision uh, to become kind of a public figure in this arena. Why was it important to you? And has it come at a cost in any way? Mm. Hmm. Thank you for that question. I, I'm not sure I ever made a decision to become a public figure. Although I think perhaps um, language that more accurately represents the process for me would be, I didn't stop it from happening and I sort of allowed it to happen, so to speak. But um, I think the, the origins of the way that I've launched my work into more visible spheres actually come from my political leanings. And, and I'll, I'll back up just briefly to explain that. I, in going through graduate school, saw this chasm between the academic world and the the non-academic world. 
And included in that chasm was a, as a perceived hierarchy about who got to be a knowledge holder in society and who had access to resources that could transform people's lives and, and who didn't. And the divide seemed disorganized and equal, and equal because often the people who had all the power to know what could impact the quality of people's lives were not the people who needed that information, nor the people who they extracted that information from. So when I think about the process of research, I think about its legacy of colonizing, that the academic goes in, extracts data, uses it to build their CV, get tenure in the institution, publish all of these things, and they stay in the academic libraries that the public can't even access. And so for me, um, the feminist thrust of my research career is to see if we could redistribute knowledge and power by giving access to data that could otherwise impact people's quality of lives. You can't really redistribute research without making it visible uh, without finding ways to get it into the hands of people. And one of the things that tends to make that more accessible is if people know your work or are interested in a project, or if you publish a book or um, are on different projects. And so there have been consequences, I would say, navigating the complexity of public versus personal. I think Doing graduate training for so many years has helped me learn how to delineate those things. And a a phrase that I regularly return to that some of my colleagues kind of use is sharing sharing scars, not wounds, like noticing the difference between what I'm working out in public versus like what I feel ready to, it's been metabolized, it's been integrated, and I can understand its usefulness and I'm unattached to other people's reactions to it. So if they're not thrilled about the story or they have judgment about it, I could actually be okay because it feels integrated and and um, part of my narrative in a way that I can also hold it loosely. So there are, th- there are tensions in those pieces because not everybody gets that and... I think there are lots of projections on the person of the therapist often because of how we can appear seemingly removed and objective. And yet I'm trying to make efforts to let myself be seen in ways that also honor the parts of me that need to be held close. Yeah. And that just feels like lots of thoughts, lots of things to think about, lots of conversations to have, um, particularly with my partner too, about what kinds of things I share and don't. But really, the if I circle back to what I'm trying to say at the core of this, I, I want the divide between who knows and who doesn't know to start to equalize in a way that we share power and we share knowledge and that findings that are extracted from people get returned to people and can see public work as one of the ways to do that. Wow. Like, I love the intentionality of your process around what you share and who you share it with. And I think so many of us don't take the time to identify. We just sort of put things out there and then sort of deal with the consequences and that you're so thoughtful and intentional about what you share and who you share it with in a way that's really protective of you and others is really Mm -hmm. beautiful. And I hope that we can all learn about sort of slowing down and thinking through kind of what we process. I love that sharing scars, not wounds. It's a really helpful 
Hmm. language to put around it of like, am I, is this ready to be put out there to be processed Hmm. publicly? So it's really good. Yeah. You, you mentioned something that I think just put language on, on a process that I didn't, didn't even realize, but I don't, I don't have almost any impulsivity around my public work. I take the, the balance of being a professional in a visible role very seriously, particularly as it relates to the people that I work with. And I'm thinking most about how do I honor, honor them and how do I honor myself? And there is a level of responsibility that comes with having a professional identity as a healthcare provider who speaks into public spaces about myself that I think could feel burdensome to others, but to me feels like a way to care for the people in my life that I work with but almost zero impulsivity. (laughs) (laughs) Like tweet, whoops, shouldn't have tweeted that. Never happens to you. That's great. It's actually refreshing um, for me to hear the reframe around a thoughtful process of what you want to say or put out into the world. I think I'm just coming off the heels of a almost five, well, it was five week social Mm. cleanse. And now I'm um, being really thoughtful about what did I learn and how do I want to reenter? And one of the takeaways uh, was how much, how much time I spend consumed by the thought of what kind of content is important for me to share. And part of that time is self-editing. Mm-hmm. And there is there certainly of the negative side of that. Like if I'm overtly editing um, my internal dialogue, then what am I trying to get with the outcome that maybe I need to pay attention to? But I think I fully came through the the negative side of that and was like, man, I just, I spend way too much time on this stuff. What's wrong with me for doing that? And if I don't self-correct that, then I can't have a good relationship with social media. And you just helped me actually say, well, maybe here's why. Maybe there's a, a thoughtful, positive side that is aware and reflective. The thing that came up for me, though, as you were talking, Miles, is how I just felt the acute difference in, in myself. And I, I'll have to reflect more on this. I know all of the spaces in my life, and I ha- I'm so fortunate to have many in which there is no editing whatsoever. But those are in spaces where there is deep safety and trust and mutuality. Mm. And I don't, I know how to do that. And I also don't feel like it's necessarily appropriate for me, given my role and the, and the way you social media to be unedited or to be, to be, again, to use that language, like I, to me, it feels like more like it could be impulsive, but the fact Mm. is, I've spent so much time in my life thinking about how do the different relationships get different versions of me based on the trust that I have. And it's so hard to remember that social media is a fabricated relationship with the ambiguous other. There are people on the other side, but they are not people who are necessarily invested in tending to our hearts. And there are some people probably who are doing that, but there is also... There is also a kind of um, voyeurism that can take place or scrutiny of the public other in a way that 
I think we get to be thoughtful of too, but I, I don't know necessarily what I'm saying, except that there are all of these pieces in the mix. And I, I like in myself that I have places where I don't have to edit. And those are characterized by really deep safety and trust. Mm. And that I don't expect that relationship from people on social media who I don't know. Mm. Well said. Gosh, there's been so much here. I can't mm-hmm. believe it just went by lightning fast. I wish Me we had too, another hour it? to spend with you. But, you know, in the context of what we try to invite our listeners into, what we try to live out ourselves is living into the truth of, of who we are and who we want to become, kind of finding our center component. But you talked about the beginning passion to redistribute research and to be a conduit. And maybe you could weave these together if possible, or you can separate them or just answer one or the other. But I thought as you leave us here with a closing thought, maybe based on your research, what's a message you'd want to redistribute collectively that you feel humanity could benefit most from uh, now? Mm. Do I have to pick one? Uh, <laughs> a few yeah, yeah, yeah. cycling that are coming to mind and and these are just as much for humanity as they are for me but a renegotiating the origin of the self as always having been good mm. like that we started good that we're good and that all of the things that we look at and label pathology illness destruction all of those things are not proof that we are bad. They're proof that we've been hurt and never been taught how to heal. So good. So we're good. That's always been the case. And when we remember that we can turn towards each other and turn towards ourselves in a way that heals the things that, that didn't get the care they need that tend to work themselves out and hurt other people or hurt us. So there's that piece. And then I think the other primary piece is that your body is not an object not an object for anybody else to use or to evaluate or to attribute power or to take power from. Your body is the place where life happens. Your body is good. Your body is a deep, deeply woven, um, is deeply interwoven with your sense of self. And as much as we live in a culture which has pulled us from our bodies and made us think that our bodies are the problems Maybe those stories about bodies are the problems, not bodies themselves. And that when we know that about ourselves, then we start to want to pull apart some of these hierarchies that really do keep certain bodies in positions of disempowerment and marginalization. And I think the, the subtext through all of that is there is no such thing as healing ourselves without healing our culture. And there's no such thing as healing the people and the relationships and the communities around us without also being transformed and reconciled to ourself. And in that way, everything is deeply interconnected. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I, I've got a notepad over here. I've been taking notes. Um, oh. You're just some great things I want to chew on and think of through a little bit, but we just value who you are. We value what you put out into the world. Uh, we're cheering you on from our corner of the world. And we thank you for your time today uh, in pouring into our community. Mm, what an honor to be with you both. I just am, have so treasured this time and wish it, I too wish it could go on for hours. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. 
Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.